Welcome to another edition of BartCast, a podcast series curated by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. Learn more at bcm-net.org. In uh, um, affirming that the essence of the resurrection is the defeat of of death, um, what might you want to say more about that, Torvald? Yes, a defeat of death ultimately, because we live in a time where death in its many manifestations reigns. You see, if you investigate, for instance, the Old Testament understanding of death, death is not just what happens as a physical event at the end of our life. Death is the servant of negativity, the servant of nothingness which invades our life through injustice, depression, sadness, and so on and so on. These are the servants of death. Now, if we believe that God defeated death in the raising of Jesus, then this liberates us to become servants of life. Now, but you need an eschatological dimension. The, the philosopher uh, and sociologist, part of the Frankfurt School, Max Horkheimer, in an interview said, I long for the hope that ultimately the oppressor will not win uh, over his innocent victim. So that ultimately truth and justice and peace will reign. And that is what Christians mean when they call about an ultimate judgment. It is not a judgment so that people will be kind of punished for their sins. It is the realistic hope that ultimately the God who has raised Jesus from the dead will establish what has come to fruition in this event of the resurrection. Namely, Jesus, the man of peace. Jesus, the man for others. Jesus, the one who touched the leper. Jesus, the one who gave equality to women. So that ultimately, the murderer will not triumph over his or her innocent victim. (laughs) And uh, lastly, um, I want to now return to the uh, issue of faith and and the demands of faith on us. There are a couple of things that you say uh, in the book that I, I want to again highlight. Uh, and one is that um, you believe that in the faith that is enjoined through the power of the resurrection, there is what you call a procedural priority for the struggle for justice. Uh, and and this seems uh, very very significant uh, and one of the ways in which uh, 
you distinguish your theology of the resurrection. Um, and, and of course, in the book, you, you look at several particular examples, including uh, the equality of women, um, and <clears throat> which is one you focus on, but also the overcoming of race, class, and gender distinctions. You also say that this has um, profound relevance for the ecological crisis that we are in. Um, and I know that this also is the foundation for you, theologically and politically, for an embrace of human rights. So you, you have really um, uh, put yourself as a theologian at, at the service of um, the struggle for these things based on this uh, very robust view of the resurrection. What, what would you like to tell our audience about, about those commitments? There is agreement that the resurrection uh, elicits faith. So we believe that God raised Jesus from the dead, which is one of the earliest Christians' confessions in the New Testament. We believe that God raised Jesus from the dead. But if you look into modern theology, what do people mean by faith? You find interesting answers. As you know, most churches are pedo-baptist churches. So they baptize infants. So when you ask, for instance, many German theologians, what does it mean to believe in Jesus? They say to become a Christian when you are baptized as a baby. So I believe becomes referring to baptism, to the baptism of a child. So faith is the act of the church, of the priest, to baptize a child. Now, that is very far from what the New Testament means. If we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then in the event of faith, this life of Jesus, which is vindicated through the resurrection, must become determinative for the content of faith. And as I said before, why was Jesus crucified? Because he engaged his whole life for God, of course, Abba, Father. But his engagement with God meant an engagement in the world to make human life human. That's why he broke the Sabbath. That's why he relativized the law. That is why he criticized the temple. Because his, pri his primary commitment and passion was to make human life human. So when we say that God vindicated this, there we have the basis for what we in our time now call human rights. Because human rights is the best Modern, it's not perfect, but the best modern universal uh, affirmation of what it means to be a human being. And as Christians, we read it and 
for most parts we agree with it, but we do this out of our conviction that the God who has spoken life and truth into our conscience finds that the truth of God finds analogies in these human rights. And therefore there are theologians in America, very good theologians, recently for instance uh, Nicholas Woltersdorf in two wonderful um, volumes of uh, truth and justice has argued that what we call human rights goes actually back into the Semitic, the Hebrew tradition. And people like Max Stackhouse and others have argued if you take away the theological foundation of human rights, then the whole building of human rights may indeed fall, um, is demolished. So for me, it is important that you have an ontological basis for what you are doing. And this ontological basis is grounded in God's act in Jesus Christ and becomes relevant through the work of the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, you also say, uh, in concluding this book, that uh, you know this can't be a matter of just passing on theoretic, theoretical in information or dogmatic concepts. The yeah. resurrection actually is something that is a testimony of faith, that believers receive it and they pass it on, and that that, that is essentially the vocation of, of the church. And I, I just think that's really beautiful, the way that you... Um, articulate that in the last couple of chapters in your book where you where you look both at the uh, the hermeneutics of testimony but you also talk about that the uh, you, you I believe agree with um, the reflection that I began the webinar uh, with tonight that in Mark's narrative of testimony uh, in Mark's uh, the evangelist Mark's resurrection story, uh, it is the, the way that we see or encounter the risen Jesus is really only through discipleship, and yet we are called to discipleship through testimony. Uh, and so I want to um, close by uh, inviting you to say a few words about that, which again is one of the, the, the major contributions, I believe, of, of your work. Yeah, the 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 scriptural, scriptural um, uh, symbol is the witness. There's a, in, my, in the bigger book on the resurrection, there's a whole chapter on the theology of witness uh, in, the whole, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You see, what is a witness? If you, there are two ways to look at this. One way is if you have a kind of juridical mind, if you are in the, in, in the framework of proving the resurrection as a historical event, you say, I'm a witness, the witness in the law court who tries to prove that the tomb was empty. 
That's one way of looking at a witness. Now, I don't think that is the way the theology of witness is found in the Holy Scriptures. The other witness is the witness uh, engages with the story to whom he or she witnesses, and that story now becomes dependent on the witness. And Paul Ricoeur, in an essay on, on what it means to be a witness, says a witness carries this story unto death. So, and you know, the Greek word for witness is martus, from which the English word martyr comes. So, the resurrection of the crucified Jesus is at stake in the life of the witness. If we distort the content, then the content is distorted. Therefore, it is absolutely theologically important for the church to know what they what we confess when we speak about the resurrection of the crucified Jesus because otherwise the reality of the resurrection is distorted and another sentence about because this is often overlooked in the in theology we need to rediscover the dimension of evangelism and mission. Every, every time the story of the resurrection is told in the New Testament, it is linked to the call to mission. Also in Paul, the Lord has, God has revealed God's Son to me in order that I might preach him amongst the Gentiles. Now, theology is a little embarrassed in our modern time where the, where the atheists are so strong to speak about evangelism and mission. If the story is not told, it will die. And the church is the community of people who lives from the story and has the divine obligation, to use the word of Paul, to tell the story, not just in word, not in information, but in a holistic discipleship, which includes telling the story, but at the same time living the story in, in engagement for justice and peace and so on and so on. So in our lives, the story of the crucified and risen Jesus is at stake. That's a great privilege, and it is also a great opportunity. And that brings us around full circle back to uh, where we began, which was with Mark's Easter narrative, which ends with the women running from the tomb. And the question that the reader might well ask is, well, did they bear witness? Did they give testimony? We're not told that they did in Mark's story. In fact, we're simply told that they were uh, freaked out by what they'd encountered. Uh, and yet, we know from the fact that Mark is writing his story that they did, in fact, bear witness. They did give testimony and that the story did get told. 
and that is exactly Torvald's point to us um, that uh, we the, the the encounter with the risen Christ impels us to tell this story that death's hold has been broken uh, to proclaim the faith that um, the crucified one uh, has not been defeated. Um, I I really uh, I know that for many of our regular listeners, this has been a very theological and even philosophically dense conversation. Um, but uh, this is important stuff. And I, I just, again, want to commend this book. It's very readable. It is uh, concise. As you can see, uh, Torvald is um, very straightforward. He, he, doesn't, uh, he puts his cards on the table. Uh, puts things in historical perspective, um, explains the philosophical terms that he uses. Uh, it's 180 pages that uh, we would do well to uh, to use in in our our work. Uh, we have a long a lot of work to do on our theology and practice of resurrection. But at the end of the day, it is how we bear witness to the risen uh, Christ, to that power that overcomes death. Uh, that really is at stake. Now, so Torvald, thank you um, for uh, explicating uh, so many of the incredibly uh, important ideas that you've been writing about now for 20 years and more. Uh, thank you for all of the ways that you have um, endeavored to uh, provide theological grounding for discipleship movements in Australia and Europe and uh, North America and uh, in the third world. Um, we're so appreciative of your mentoring and your, uh, as our an elder theologian among us, we, we really want to honor the work that you have done. I want to check in, uh, Torvald, if I could, with Jeff for a minute. Um, I'm reminding those... Oh. Don't, 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 don't go away, Torvald. Jeff, I'm just checking in with you. Um, yeah. We are at our 90 minutes um, yep. for our webinar, but I know that we're ahead of the game from, from the perspective of your schedule. For those of you who joined in late, um, we, we had a, a last-minute uh, uh, screw-up where we didn't realize that Australia turned to daylight savings yesterday. <laughs> Um, so that, in fact, Torvald and Jeff are an hour ahead of where we thought they were going to be. Um, so um, I want to see, Jeff, if you are okay carrying on there. Both you and Torvald are okay carrying on for some time um, because I want, Jeff, you to talk about uh, a little bit about your book, but I also want a chance for people to ask questions of Torvald. And so I'm just checking in with you in terms of where your class is, where you are, um, do you have another half hour? Because it's only us here in North America who are up against the 90 minutes at this point. Yep, we've got another half hour. People will start to leave at the end of that, but that's fine. Okay. Um, well, as, uh, uh, as uh, John Stewart says on The Daily Show, if you, if you want to get um, extra footage on, on the interview, you can uh, tune in later. For those of you who have been on the webinar already for an hour and a half, um, you are welcome to stay on if you've got to go because many of you on the east coast of the U.S. are uh, very late in the night. Uh, 
you will be getting a recording of this uh, extended long play webinar that you could come back and listen to the Q&A. Uh, what I'd like to do, Jeff, if I could, is uh, take about five, uh, ten, 10 minutes or so to allow a few people to ask questions of Torvald yeah. and then turn it over to you to sort of uh, talk about how your work relates to Torvald's work. Um, this is now, we've got two audiences. We've got a live audience in Canberra, and we've got a virtual audience on the webinar. I want to give the first shot to somebody there in the classroom in Canberra. And Jeff, you'll have to explain how they need to come, come up and speak their question into, uh, into the camera. And that gives a couple of minutes for those of you on the webinar to type in a question that you might have for Tor Torvald using the chat function. So is there anybody in the room there uh, in Canberra who wants to ask a question? Yeah, I've just dubbed someone in. She's coming up. Um, my question is, Torvald, how do you live um, the story of the resurrection? You touched on it at the end, but what does that look like? Um, how does the resurrection live in us, if, if that's what I heard you say? Yeah, the the resurrection is is related to faith, and therefore, basically, faith needs content, and the content of our faith is the story of Jesus, which has, of course, many different dimensions. It is very colorful. It's like it's beautiful, but it's like a rainbow. Every one of us is different. Yet it has certain, it has certain input which is not negotiable. First of all, God's yes to us. We are justified by faith through Jesus Christ, which means not our works, not our grades, not our achievements, but God says. Yes to us, each individually as we are. That frees us from trying to prove, um, trying to prove ourselves. But then we need, uh, our faith needs to be filled with those dimensions which brought Jesus to the cross. Being fathers, special leaning for the victims of society, for instance in our society in Australia, it's at the moment very controversial what we, our government, is doing with the uh, refugees and asylum seekers. That is just impossible. It shows a disrespect for human life. And if Jesus did anything, Jesus engaged himself to make human life human. And we treat people, human beings, with disrespect. Worldwide, the greatest challenge is the challenge, the ecological challenge, climate change. If we don't find a way to solve that problem, we are committing suicide to the human race. And therefore, the resurrection has also the metaphor of, of transformation um, so that, the, the, that through the resurrection, the cosmic relevance of Christ is... Uh, 
uh, affirmed by God, and therefore it includes the dimension of ecological responsibility. So uh, these are just a couple of illustrations of how the resurrection of Christ becomes valid in our own life, both personally and our commitment within society. Jeff, let me give one more uh, opportunity for someone in, in your class there to ask another question. And I'd, I'd encourage uh, you there in Canberra to introduce yourself to uh, the webinar. You're beaming across the world here. It's exciting. Hi, my name's Marie. So my question is you were talking about witness and that in our modern society that it's not really looked on, our witness isn't very favorable, that it's a challenge for us to witness in our modern society. So how do you think we tackle that challenge? It is a challenge, and the way we tackle it is try to, try to discern where are the victims in our society. For instance, in Australia, indigenous people, refugees, women who suffer uh, domestic violence, the whole ecology, and so on. So we discern the victim and show compassionate solidarity with the victim. So when we vote for a party, our walk to the voting booth is an act of worship. When we go to a demonstration, we have to be sure what side we are on. So the story is alive in ourselves, and we flesh it out. Thank you. Um, I want to try to squeeze in one more question here, um, and this comes from our dear friends uh, in Toronto, Canada, uh, Susie and, and Jennifer. Um, and Jennifer is, is asking, um, how do we speak into the apparent conflicts in human rights, particularly around uh, the equality of women, uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender people, uh, and religious um, difference uh, and freedom of religion. Now, um, two out of those three issues, Torvald, you, you tackled very specifically in your um, 2003 book, um, namely the, the question of, of women and, uh, and religious pluralism. And you might want to say uh, a quick word about those um, and perhaps also address then the, the, the issue of L the LGBT community. Uh, um, the, the church, uh, Christians are in a terrible dilemma here because most major churches have failed to witness to the resurrection of the crucified Jesus. Any church which does not give equality to women misses a major aspect of the gospel. And we know that most major churches refuse to ordain women, refuse to ordain bishops, 
And within the Catholic Church, for instance, the question of women's ordination is not is forbidden to be discussed even. So here, the church's testimony is so bad that it is very difficult for some of us who have an alternative voice to find the ears of the people who are concerned. With regard to religious pluralism, that is a fact. Whether you are an atheist or a Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or Christian, we can only witness to what we know to be truth. And we do this in great respect. We, do, we are committed in the name of Jesus to nonviolence. Nonviolence is a major aspect of Christian discipleship. And that nonviolence excludes physical violence, but it also excludes verbal violence. Paul says, I beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. The Christian is the beggar. He or she puts his or her cards on the table by telling their story and then leave it up to others to discern what they want to discern. Is there, Torvald, is there anything you want to say about how your, um, how that same logic applies to the gay and lesbian communities, both inside the church and outside of the church? The, the gay and les, lesbian communities uh, have the same right to exist in any other community. They are human beings who have decided to a certain lifestyle and they deserve our respect. Now, we need to discuss, of course, when this affects others. So one of the, one of the difficulties, or let us say one of the challenges is, what happens if gay and lesbian people adopt children? Then we, we have to ask, is that in the best interest of the children? So we always have to look at reality from below, through the eyes of the potential victim. But basically, gay and lesbian people, like any other person, deserve our respect and have a place within the community of faith. Thank you, Torvald, and, and you'll be pleased to know that this question was asked by um, lesbian parents in Toronto, uh, who are wonderful parents and have a wonderful child. Um, again, we, uh, we really appreciate your um, being with us as an elder theologian, uh, great, greatly respected among us. Thank you for all the work you do on our behalf, and we, uh, we want to to uh, really uh, express our appreciation for you taking the time to be with us tonight. It's great to be with you. All the best to you. Thank you. Now, um, I want to, um, Jeff Broughton, who's now on our screen here, is uh, been uh, 
helping technically bring this uh, webinar to us on the Australian end. He's also a theologian in his own right, uh, a colleague of Torvalds. And um, Jeff, um, you've just uh, published a really important book, um, sort of taking some of these ideas and applying them very specifically to the risen Christ as an advocate of uh, or as the embodiment of restorative justice. And so I just want to turn it over to you. You know how to advance the screen, right? Um, yep. Using the arrow and your slides are in the order that you gave them to. So okay. um, I, I just want to turn it over to you for uh, uh, 10 minutes or so uh, as our, our bonus uh, uh, ending portion to this uh, very rich program tonight. Thanks, Chad. So I guess my way into this conversation is to get back up to the point of view of most of us here on the webinar are activists rather than theologians, and that's really been my journey. I've spent the last two decades as an inner city pastor in Sydney, Australia, really with quite activist tendencies, um, and became quite involved in the practice of restorative justice in those communities, uh, became an important part of the way we tried to work for justice for those who were marginalised in the inner city. Um, but I always had this sense that there were deeper theological sort of underpinnings to the work we were doing that I would have loved to have known about, but of course in the busy activist lifestyle, never really took the time to think about. Uh, I was given the opportunity a while ago to engage in some doctoral studies and Torvald was one of my supervisors. And I'd already decided that the Christological dimension to the work of justice was key to what I wanted to explore in my studies. And I remember an early conversation with Torvald. You've heard him for the last hour, so I don't need to try and imitate his accent, but you can get the way he said it. And the words were exactly this. He said, of course, you'll begin with the resurrection of Jesus. Um, now, of course, the of course wasn't obvious to me. I probably would have just progressed by thinking about the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, and then as a sort of footnote, consider the resurrection of Jesus. But it was those eight words, of course you'll begin with the resurrection of Jesus, that I think really helped shape those studies and the work since of which this book is a product. And really what I try and do in the book is, I guess, the outworking of what happens when you start reflecting on the work of justice, Christologically, starting with the resurrection. See, my tribe was much more of a reformed tribe of Anglicans. We've heard about conservative evangelicals from Torvald, and I guess that properly describes the heritage I come from, who are very clear about the connections between Jesus' death and justice, sometimes called a retributive justice or penal justice, in the book, I prefer adversarial justice as the description. And really, Jesus' life is marginalised to the point where whether he lived for 33 years on this earth or the last five days doesn't make a lot of difference to the justice that is wrought by Jesus. It really does focus on the death of Jesus. But I have enough Anabaptist friends, and I've been hanging around people like Chad and John Hurd in Sydney, to also know of that tradition and the importance of Jesus' life for justice, sometimes talked about as a liberating justice or restorative justice, but also noted, and particularly in the last decade or so, a certain ambivalence or even awkwardness in that tradition about speaking of Jesus' death 
and how Jesus' death could be also an act of justice. So Torvald's advice, or really it was an instruction to begin with the resurrection of Jesus, was a way of avoiding those two tracks that were sort of well-established that would seem to lead, lead in almost opposite directions. And so beginning with the resurrection of Jesus, which was the first part of my studies, I guess also um, on the advice of Jim McClendon, who I met at Fuller 20 years ago, and a mentor of yours, Ched, who talks about in his work that uh, all of us encounter a risen Jesus. Whether we think about the life of Jesus or death of Jesus, we only encounter that Jesus as the risen Christ. So the resurrection became an important way in for me to both affirm the life of Jesus as a life of justice, and that flows out in some of the earlier chapters. I have not been advancing my screens, as you said, sorry. Just let me do this. That's the book. Uh, In The Compassion of Jesus, particularly interacting with people like Chris Marshall um, and his teaching um, and really the focus on the discipleship practice that flow out of that. But The Compassion of Jesus, The Nonviolent Jesus, of course, John Howard Yoder. These are some of the things I was able to affirm in the book as this Christological picture um, was formed of what I'm calling the restorative Christ. But equally to affirm that Jesus was for others. Torvald already used that phrase, uh, made famous, I guess, in the last hundred years by Bonhoeffer himself, Um, and really seeing all these working together to affirm the life of Jesus for justice and the death of Jesus for justice, Uh, and in the language of Torvald, to see that the whole Christ event, through the lens of the resurrection, as an event for others, or what he calls a relational event, And so in my book, I uh, encapsulate this in Jesus' enemy love. This is the expression of the relationality of the resurrection seen in the life of Jesus, seen in his death, seen in his resurrection as enemy love. And so some of those things that Torvald was talking about earlier, a Jesus who touched the leper is the compassionate Jesus. A Jesus who was a man for peace is the nonviolent Jesus. Um, A Jesus who is the man for others is the Jesus who died on the cross for others. So I would hope that the different parts of the book that come together as the restorative Christ and its Christological focus have really been shaped by this instruction to begin with the resurrection of Jesus, which um, you've heard him for an hour. You can see why he's so committed to this approach. And um, that's that's the end result for me. And uh, hopefully a restorative Christ is one that holds the life, death and resurrection together and affirms all three. Now, Jeff, uh, thank you. Um, That's very concise and I I really commend very, very highly also uh, this book from from Jeff, who's teaching theology part-time in in Canberra and also is an Anglican priest uh, up in Sydney. Um, This is a really important book. Jeff actually... uh, debuted some of his work at uh, some of our Bartimaeus Institutes and we're very grateful for his faithful uh, work in taking the restorative justice paradigm and um, rereading biblical texts through that lens. Jeff, I want to ask you a question that I think um, relates to uh, uh, 
the theme tonight. Uh, as you know, one of my favorite parts of, of your book is your treatment of the conversion of the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, in which uh, he encounters the risen Christ mm -hmm. in a vision, in a vision um, that completely uh, subverts his life. This is Saul, who's working uh, for the uh, Judean authorities to try to actually crush the nascent Jesus movement. Uh, and in the narrative in Acts 8 and 9, as you've um, reread it um, for us, uh, you, you particularly emphasize that, that the risen Christ is revealed to Saul, the persecutor, um, as being mystically embodied in the very flesh of those that this military attaché, Saul, is um, jailing, um, uh, in, invading houses in the dead of night, um, interrogating, torturing, and killing. In other words, uh, when Saul asks Jesus, uh, asks the voice on the road to Damascus, who are you? Um, the voice responds by saying, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. And I'd like to invite you, in the spirit of our conversation around the theology of the resurrection, to just say a little bit about what does it mean for the risen Christ to, to, to be um, mystically present in the bodies of any and all who are being tortured, disappeared, jailed and, and killed um, in the service of national security. Wow. Okay, let me have a go. Um, I think the idea originally came from another Anglican, Rowan Williams, former Archbishop of Canterbury, who speaks about uh, the risen Jesus as both the merciful judge and saving victim. And I was intrigued by this idea of how victims could actually be the salvation of their oppressors. And so that, uh, that thought, I guess, encouraged me to think beyond the obvious meaning of Jesus' words, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, to think in ways that Jesus as the risen Jesus was also going to be what Paul Woodlay described, uh, the body of Christ as the church, and it really was the church that was being persecuted according to Paul's own testimony. Um, and so to not ignore, as you call it, the physicality of that persecution by Saul, uh, was it possible that in hearing those words, um, I am Jesus who you are persecuting, he also... Jesus was speaking on behalf of those silent victims. It seems to me not a stretch to think that Saul had the opportunity in his blindness and in his travel between there and his final destination and baptism with Ananias to actually reflect on that and to see it's not just a personal attack on Jesus but as Jesus as the representative of the new community that would become the body of Christ, the church, that they were also being persecuted. And so uh, that's part of what I do in that chapter. Uh, and I think in terms of your question, how that relates to 
um, contemporary injustice to those who are often silenced and physically treated uh, with massive injustice, that I, on the side of, and I'm often in Saul's shoes, have not thought about how those who I am oppressing either directly or indirectly through um, being part of a system that does that to people, how those people might actually be my salvation. But I think that's an important insight that comes from the restorative justice movement, but also scripturally in this passage, that part of Saul's salvation and his encounter with the risen Christ is an encounter with those silent victims, uh, those nameless women and children and people that were being dragged off to prison and beaten under his instruction. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Torvald mentioned the asylum seeker issue in Australia today. That would certainly be also true of undocumented immigrants here in the United States. Uh, would also be true of the Canadian situation. Um, it is important for us to be mindful of the ways in which the risen Christ dwells among and speaks for all of those whose bodies are being marginalized and dehumanized in so many ways right now by um, forces in our countries. Uh, And that's where this theological work is not abstract. It's not removed. It's very much engaged right with the struggles of um, both... um, um, people under oppression and those of us who would seek to, uh, in the spirit of our faith, stand in solidarity with those people. And Jeff, you've really um, done a great work in this in this book. You have been listening to the Bartcast, produced by Bartimaeus Cooperative Ministries. To find our resources or to donate to support the Bartcast, please go to chedmyers.org. Thank you for listening.